Good morning. Welcome to another edition of the Catalyst Conversations. We are joined today by Michael Schramm. He is the corporate partner at Dwayne Morris with one area of focus being cannabis. Michael, welcome. My pleasure to be here, Mike. So, Michael, you're in New York, right? That is, that is correct. And there's some stuff going on there. What, what, what's up? <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we have a, you know, a, a developing cannabis market, a developing legal cannabis market in, in New York. But we've always had, you know, you know, from you know, my early days, you know, walking around the city, we've always had a cannabis market. It just hasn't been legal. Um, but, you know, we have made some it's progress. Legacy, in the, right? It's, it's, all, it's all been legacy. It's a very strong legacy market. The legacy market is actually, you know, exploding in New York today. You can't walk down the street now without getting, you know, a whiff of, of, of weed. And, you know, there are, you know, this, you know legacy dispensaries popping up, uh, you know, completely illegal, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and veiled threats from, you know, the OCM, our Office of Cannabis Management that, you know, if people are doing, if starting to do it illegally now, it's going to be more difficult for them to get, you know, a legitimately you know, legal license, you know, you know, versus the folks who have been doing it for a long time. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But yes, I mean, they, you know, it's, we've made some, I would call it significant progress in the last couple of months. They have, um, you know, put out regs or proposed regs uh, for both a, con well, they, they put out proposed legs for conditional cultivation license. They've now granted 88 licenses to those folks who have existing hemp licenses in New York. I think there are a total of 200 of them. Um, and if you were, you know, if you've been growing hemp for CBD uh, with a relatively streamlined application, you can get a conditional hemp license that's good for, I believe, two years from the, you know, the date of, date of grant. Um, and they have also now proposed, although we don't see any regs yet, nor is the portal open, they're going to grant licenses to probably up to 200 retail locations um, that are going to go to those folks who are, quote, justice involved, meaning that they or an immediate family member has a marijuana conviction on the record. And, and you know, one of the things that we, we routinely see is just, you know, the expectation like this you know, legislation gets passed, people, people think the market's gonna to open tomorrow, and then, you know, it takes several years to sort through this. Thoughts? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, I think that the press has done a little bit of a disservice saying, you know, we're gonna have a, you know, a full cannabis, you know, market in New York by Q3 of this year. I mean, I, you know, it's just, it, it moves slower than you expect. Um, there will be supply chain issues. You know, I mean, yes, they're, you know, they're getting some limited supply in the works, but we have no, you know, manufacturing or processing licenses yet. We have no distribution licenses yet. And, and you know, and so, you know, you know, you get, I mean, you have to figure out how to get the product from the, you know, from, from the, from the seed to the sale, so to speak. And so, you know, it's going to take a while. I would, I wouldn't expect we're going to see significant sales until next year, frankly. Um, and, you know, it's like most states, I'm sure, you know, there will be adjustments on the regulatory front once they see how all this plays out. And, and I know that uh, New York's put a priority on the restorative justice programs. Um, we have historically 
seen that these haven't been either managed well or have been taken advantage? What is New York doing to make sure that um, this program works? Um, well, you know, I, I mean, first off, I think, you know, they have been very thoughtful. And one of the reasons I think the regs have been slow to come out is, you know, they're, you know, they're looking around and talking to people to see, you know, what was been done right and what, what's been done wrong, right? The, you know, while it's not a mandate, the stated goal in the legislation was at least 50% of all licenses will be granted to those folks who have been, you know, impacted, you know, by the war on drugs. Um, certainly the, you know, the way to, to be approaching retail with the first 200 having to have, right, you have to have been a New York, you know, resident, um, you have to have operated, you know, own 10% of a business that has operated profitably for, I think, two out of the last four years and have, you know, have a marijuana related conviction, you know, shows, you know, their intent to, you know, make sure that those folks, you know, you know, get priority. You know, the, the challenge is always making sure that, that, you know, the folks who get a license at, you know, at ever, whatever license category, you know, are able to stand up a business and run it and don't, you know, get a license and then either A, get taken advantage of by predatory investors or get a license, put hard-earned money into it and because they don't have the skill to build out a cannabis business are unsuccessful and they've lost, you know, whatever sort of safety net they have in terms of savings. And that's sort of always my concern on the, on the social equity side if you're granting it to those who truly... You know, you know, this business can be a you know a life-altering event in terms of you know of, of financial stability, generational wealth. That they have the skills necessary, you know, to be to operate a business and being put together the right team to help them succeed. And, and they, they hope to do that by you know picking people that have been in business and, and that the screening process. Well, I mean, I think I think you know for the for the for the retail. Um, you know, having been involved as an owner and the business has been been profitable, I think is certainly one step. You know, the the goal to stand up this two hundred million dollar you know fund to, to provide you know you know low interest loans to social equity applicants is an you know is an is another aspect of it, so that they you know they can have um, you know low low interest you know capital in which to build out their business. I mean, it's, you know, from, you know, depending upon where you want to build, a, you know, you know, assuming you're going to focus on retail, which may be the, you know, retail and delivery, probably the two, you know, least capital intensive, but from everybody I've spoken to, right, if, if you're going to, if you're trying to build a dispensary, you know, to attract the kind of clientele you're probably going to want to attract, you know, it's a, you know, a million and a half to $2 million, you know, required investment. I mean, yes, I've heard people you could do it for 500,000, but, you know, I think yeah, you and the reality is, and the reality is, you know, it's a million dollars, but, you know, it's going to be a while before you see profitability, right? Because just, yeah. you know, yeah. as they work through the legislation, as they work through the taxation, um, as a later entrant into the cannabis space, is New York able to learn from the mistakes of California, you know, the benefits of Colorado? Can they take advantage of those states and learn from them? Uh, we, we certainly hope so. Um, you know, the you know, it, you know, it's it's always a challenge. I think one of the real drivers for getting you know this through any legislature is the potential tax revenue. So 
you know, you're, you know, we will have, you know, high, you know, high tax rates, maybe not as high as California. Um, you know, New York is going to base the tax rate on the THC content, which I, uh, which, which, you know, which I think is, is a relatively novel concept. Although what I discovered in, you know, is, you know, alcohol is actually taxed that way. It's just not taxed that way at the retail level. It, it's go through wholesale channels. I gather the you know, the, the tax that the wholesaler pays is a function of, you know, how much alcohol is in, is in what they're selling. Um, so, you know, the tax rates are going to be there, which means, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have a legacy market. And the question always has been, and I don't know that any state has successfully, you know, any large state has successfully figured out how to, you know, solve that dilemma, right? Because with a high, with a high tax rate, you know, with, you know, with expensive leases, all that kind of stuff, you know, product is, is substantially more expensive, you know, in a, in a fully licensed market. And the only way to really drive people into that market is to, you know, is to, either lower the taxes or, you know, <laughs> frankly, scare people about what could potentially happen to them by buying unregulated product. Yeah, I mean, there was a study that came out in Spain, like, you know, two or three years ago. And, you know, they had tested the, you know, the legacy markets product and 80% contained fecal matter. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the stuff that you buy on the street, you're, it's just a gamble, right? You don't know truly what you're getting. Um, so yeah, yeah. tell us a little bit, you know, one of the things we've seen, and maybe you can talk about this, is there seems to be a rush by law firms to now be in the cannabis space. It's hot. It's a green rush. You know, um, you guys are in the space and I'm not suggesting that this is you, but yeah. you know, how do we sort of differentiate from the real legal players in the cannabis space versus the wannabes? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, listen, it's, you know, I, I think this is, it's not unique to cannabis. Um, anytime there's a new industry that people think there are opportunities, they rush to it from, you know, you know, all aspects, you know, legal, I mean, all professional services, you know, you know, we, had, you know we made a decision as a firm seven years ago to enter the space. Um, you know, I think the way we, you know, the way we differentiate yourselves and certainly, you know, the, the corporate lawyers in our cannabis practice, um, I mean, you know, we have quite a, you know, we have 120 lawyers in our cannabis practice um, across all legal disciplines is, you know, you know, we don't we don't say we're cannabis lawyers, right? We say we are, you know, you know, business lawyers who have an industry focus in cannabis, and it's you know, it's a, it, it, I think it's a subtle but important difference. Um, you know, if if you are if you are raising money, if you're starting a business, if you are, you know, selling your business, buying a business, you know, you you, you know, you want someone who is deeply steeped in you know, in sort of the M and A transaction world. Um, but it's also very important, particularly in this sector, given the unique, you know, regulatory aspects of it being federally legal, that they understand the cannabis, you know, you know, cannabis world really well. Um, and so, you know, frankly, that means you have to have, you know, years of experience, you know, within your firm and have a deep bench. And so, you know, it, you know, you know, without, you know, demeaning any of the, you know, quote, cannabis law firms out there, a number of them you know, started, you know, their life as criminal defense lawyers, you know, getting, you know, getting their clients, you know, out of jail for cannabis convictions. When it became legal, they were the first ones to be involved in, you know, either helping draft the legislation or deeply understanding it. So, you know, they've been really good on the licensing side, but, you know, they're not, 
experienced M&A lawyers. And, um, you know, M&A is, is challenging enough, you know, as a business owner, if, if you don't have a legal accounting and other professional service teams behind you to do it, um, you know, you're, you're at a real disadvantage. And so, you know, it's, I think it's, you know, looking at the firm, how long they've been in the space, you know, how, you know, how many lawyers they have in the group who've actually, you know, actually done cannabis work. I mean, everybody is, you know, you know, yeah, they say, raise your hand if you want to be in our cannabis group, right? It doesn't mean you've done any, any work. And while I say we have 120 lawyers in our cannabis group, you know, we have 20, probably 20 or 30 folks who are interested, but haven't done any work. But on the other hand, we have, you know, 60 or 70 lawyers across all legal disciplines who are, you know, deeply steeped in the industry. Not all of them are spending half their time or more like, you know, our core group, but, you know, plenty of them are spending, you know, 10, 20, 30% of their time, you know, employment lawyers, IP lawyers, you know, you know, it's, yeah, you need to understand these cannabis nuances in order to adequately represent a client. And, and is part of your role to advocate for you know different legislation to move this along? Um, you know, it, it we don't do a ton of lobbying. I mean, I you know I obviously would speak to any regulator who wanted to speak to me. I've spoken to some folks up in in, in New York. Um, you know, in the, in the office of cannabis management. Um, I mean, there are certain things I would like to see, but you know, I'm not, I'm not a registered lobbyist and I wouldn't even know how to start. I mean, it's, you know, there, and there are, you know, a number of, you know, cannabis trade associations, you know, whose focus is on legislation. Um, you know, there are, you know, there are some actually, you know, cropping up now that are more sort of focused on the business of cannabis. There's a, a, a group that started on the West Coast called the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce that's just, you know, moved east that I've become, you know, part of, to, you know, it's really to help, you know, like any Chamber of Commerce, help business be successful without a legislative agenda. But, uh, you know, there are plenty of groups, you know, handling all aspects of this industry for anybody who wants to get involved. And, and does the activity in the local states like New Jersey help move things in New York? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think, I mean, I think if you look, you look at the whole tri-state area, um, you know, and depending on where, on where you sit, you know, it's, it can be, you know, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, you know, New Jersey, Connecticut, you know, even, you know, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, I think, you know, they, they all feed off each other. Um, you know, there is, you know, notwithstanding that it's not truly legal, people are crossing borders all the time to buy product. And that means, you know, lost, you know, tax revenue for the state or, you know, in the case of New York and New Jersey, which just started adult use sales, you know, at the end of April, um, you know, you know, the sooner you can stand up your adult use market, the quicker you'll start to generate tax revenue. And so it's, you know, it's always been, you know, New, you know, obviously New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut all sort of are on the same path to standing up adult use. And, you know, New Jersey is, you know, currently in the, in the lead because they started it, although they don't, you know, at the moment, there are no edibles in New Jersey and it will require amendment to legislation to get there. Um, so I think, you know, once, once New York, you know, launches, it will you know, probably substantially overtake the New Jersey market. And all those people in in New York won't have to cross, you know, a bridge or a tunnel to buy their product. 
and nobody, yeah, by the nobody same, wants to go right, to New Jersey. Yeah, right. <laughs> but right, but by the same token, right, you know, it's you know, I I know some of the people who run dispensaries in in the Berkshires, you know, and you obviously can tell where the person is from because they're tracking driver's licenses. You know, half their sales are from New York. Sure. Now, you know, a large portion of those may be people with second homes up there, but it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, what happens to these markets surrounding New York when, you know, someone can just, you know, go around the corner or even just have it delivered and they won't have to go to out of state to do it. Um, so, it, you know, we're all sort of waiting to see how that all plays out. Um, no one's quite sure, you know, how, you know, it also depends on, you know, who carries what brand. And where does CBD currently sit in all of this? Well, I mean, you know, CBD is now, you know, legal. You can ship it, you know, wherever you want. You can buy it wherever you want. You can't make, you know, health claims. And, you know, the, the you know, FDA has been cracking on, cracking down on folks who make, you know, any health claims about CBD. Um, you know, you know, there is a portion of the, you know, the industry out there that questions, you know, you know, what CBD is good for and what it isn't good for. I mean, I think, you know, there's, you know, there's certainly some anecdotal evidence that it helps certain things, you know, whether or not you need CBD in shampoo and toilet paper, you know, it's, uh, um, you know, it's always a question, but, you know, like, you know, you know, and, you know, is it snake oil? Probably not. But, you know, if you, you know, if you say the product has CBD and you can charge more because everybody thinks it's, you know, it's a wonder. I can't say wonder drug, a wonder product, um, you know, then people are going to charge more and people are going to buy it. Um, yeah. You know, the problem with CBD is, you know, there's sort of, you know, there's less differentiation, you know, at the moment. And so um, it's becoming a bit of a commodity. I mean, I yeah. think one of the reasons you see more, yeah, one of the reasons you see more money flowing into THC is because, you know, there's, you know, it, you know, it, it's a more, you know, it's a controlled, controlled substance. Um, and so there's, you know, there's, you know, there, there with, with a lot more upside and, you know, there'll always be, you know, it'll be regulated. So it will be limited, you know, ability to, you know, to grow through sell. And, and does New York or, or, or do the, the players within New York, do they intend to create a, a craft market or, you know, will this be big cannabis? What's going to be the approach to that? So as the legislation now stands, you can only have a license in a single license category. I think we have like, you know, nine or 10 license categories. You know, we have, you know, cultivation, you know, manufacturing, processing, extraction, you know, delivery, retail, consumption lounge. And then we have, you know, a, 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 you know, a micro license and a co-op license. And I'm probably missing one or two. Um, but you know, there, you know, there's you know, it's a limit on the amount of canopy if you want to cultivate. There's a limit on the number of employees you have in delivery. If you have retail, you only can have three. So you know, there's not going to be mass consolidation in the industry. Um, you know, that you know, you know, whether or not some of the MSOs who want a footprint in New York will come in and partner, you know, with somebody to get a toehold, so that once consolidation is allowed their position to do so you know we'll you know we you know we'll be seen um but i also think most people think you know that the odds of well and you know you know there'll be yeah, i think we the, the belief is there will be a limit on a state limit on total canopy there may not be a state limit on retail that's you know we'll have to see there um 
But I think everybody believes the best way to ensure you get a license is to partner with a social equity applicant, which means, you know, as a some yeah, as a non-social equity applicant, the most you can own is 49%. So, you know, will there be, you know, is there a business model to make major investment when, you know, your revenue will be limited for some period of time until you consolidate? And, and then, you know, these limitations, are we primarily talking adult use? What about medicinal or do we, are they facing the same limitations? Well, on, on medicinal, there are uh, 11, I can't remember, nine or 11, they're called registered organizations, fully, fully, fully vertically integrated. They're not granting any more of those. Okay. So, um, you know. So the players know, are the know, players. Players are the players. You know, they may flip, you know, we just saw Ekane, you know, sell out um, a couple of weeks ago for a nice large sum of money. Um, now, you know, the, the interesting thing with that is if you are one of these registered, you know, organizations and are, ha and, and are allowed to have, I believe, up to six, you know, retail locations, you will be able to co-locate three adult use in your six. So, you know, they will have, you know, you know, when that's allowed, um, you know, sort of a built-in, you know, advantage because, you know, they'll be able to guarantee, you know, both supply of product and, and you know, and be able to immediately stand up an adult use, you know, location at one of the, one of the existing, you know, one of the existing retail locations. So um, we don't know yet whether or not you know, they, you know, when they're going to allow those folks to start selling in, in theirs and, you know, whether or not they, you know, make them wait a bit to let the let, let less industry catch up or they're more interested in getting the market flowing, in which case you turn that spout on easier. I mean, that's what, frankly, what New Jersey just did was allow, you know, 11 of the <clears throat> vertically integrated um, medical companies to start selling, you know, in their, you know, in, in their locations. And, you know, it, they were, you know, they're like $2 million of sales on the first day, primarily it's flour and pre-rolls because that's all they really had in stock. And, and um, what, is, what has been the challenge that most of the clients are coming to you for? What, what are they working on? It, you know, it depends at what level. I think that, uh, you know, I mean, capital is always continues to be a challenge. I mean, and, you know, 60% of my or 70% of my cannabis practice is working with, you know, established operators who are either moving to other states or trying to expand. And for them, it's, you know, it's access, it's access to capital. Um, obviously, you know, in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, you know, Connecticut, even to Massachusetts, it's a lot of them are, you know, either, you know, are considering applying for a license um, or have one or are looking for capital. And, you know, New York in particular, since, you know, other than the, um, the cultivation license, you know, there's nothing to apply for, you know, the challenge is, you, you know, it's being prepared. Um, you know, we expect when the regs come out, well, when, when the regs come out that, and the portal opens for even the first 200 retail, you're going to have a relatively short window of time to submit your application. Um, and right, if, if you haven't started talking to people already, you know, I mean, you know, there are a lot of resources you need, right? You I mean you're going to need a business plan with financial projections. You're going to need security plans, SOPs, right? You're going to need a you know a lawyer who knows what they're doing. You're going to you know you start talking to 
folks with capital, and you're probably going to have to begin to have identified real estate. Now, you know, you know, it it's likely that you won't have to have your location locked up when you submit your application. But, you know, looking at other states, which give you three or four months, that may not be enough time, right? I mean, you know, and the challenge, you know, one of the biggest challenges for folks, particularly on the retail side is, you know, identifying a location, you know, that's, you know, not within 200 slash 500 feet of, you know, a school place of worship, you know, with a landlord that's willing you know, to have you as a tenant. And it's not, right. And it, often it's not just the landlord's decision, right? If they have a, you know, if they have a mortgage, um, you know, their, you know, their lender may not allow them to rent to a cannabis debt. And otherwise they could be in default of their mortgage. Um, but then you have the thorny issue of, you know, they're not going to say, sure, as soon as you get your license, the space is available, right? They're going to want you to sign a lease and you will wind up having to pay rent, you know, for a period of time, not knowing even whether or not you're going to get a license. But if you if you wait until you have your license, you may find it very difficult to find suitable property. And yeah, that's you have to honestly of, invest yeah. up front, you know, and then hope and pray you get a license. Right, which is not, you know, which is not going to be, you know, I mean, it, it's, you're really buying a lottery ticket here. And you just, you know, I mean, we have no idea how many people are going to apply for licenses, but I can probably, you know, with 99% certainty tell you not everybody who applies is going to get one. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, there will be, you know, there may likely be, you know, I mean, first of all, you know, a large portion of the state, although, you know, by geography, not necessarily by population has opted out. Now, you know, you know, you know, New York City is all opted in and everybody I've spoken to in here thinks, you know, they I mean, they want to be in sort of premier locations, you know, how, you know, you know, how many, you know, can you have within a, you know, 10 block radius or, you know, within a borough or whatnot, you know, it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out. But um, I mean, real estate is, is going to be one of the largest stumbling blocks, I think, for people who do this, because A, they won't be able to afford to pay, you know, rent in advance of getting a license or they're gonna to wait too long and not be able to find the suitable you know, location that fits their needs. And, and just to sort of shift topic a little bit, I, I know that you've spent a considerable amount of time networking online and then recently headed down to Florida. How has the transition back to in-person been? Exhausting, um, <laughs> right? It's, you know, as I say, I'm out of conference shape. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, you know though I, I was down in Miami, you know, for the Benzinga Capital Conference um, that I, you know, you know I, and, you know, I'm not getting paid to say this. It's one of the best, you know, kind of cannabis conferences I've been to. Um, you know, I think, you know, the fact that they had over 1,600 people in person, you know, which is probably double or triple what they've had in the past shows how much people want to be in person together. But, you know, it's, it's physically and mentally exhausting, you know, to, you know, be on your feet all day talking to people, you know, you know, you know, probably 16 hours a day. And so, um, yeah, 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 I'm I'm just, you know, I'm out of shape of doing that and have to sort of, you know, work my way back into it, but it was really good to be back in person. Yeah. What was interesting is my, uh, my networking capabilities is about three to four hours. And then after that, I get too cranky. (laughs) Like, I just like, I have to leave. Like, I'm going to do more damage at that point than (laughs) Um, Yeah. I know with the, uh, with the Benzinga conference, we're starting to lump in um, psychedelics. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, for well, the cannabis industry specifically. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it, I think there's a lot of misconceptions. You know, I will say, and, you know, and, and 
the Benzinga conference actually had for the first time a sort of pre-conference on psychedelics that I, I went down to because it's something I want to learn more about. Um, you know, I always thought this to be the case and it was definitely, you know, confirmed being there. There are two completely different industries that, you know, the psychedelics in my, in my view, the psychedelics industry will take a completely different path than cannabis, right? It, I mean, every single company who was there presenting, you know, you know, you know, who has you know a psychedelic based drug is go it will go ultimately for fda approval mm -hmm. so it will not face you know I, I do not think i mean yes i mean i yeah i mean oregon a couple of other places have legalized psilocybin um but i think by and large you know this is a you know a biotech um life science you know industry um you know it, it, it you know these these drugs will all be approved by the FDA and so will not face the same issues that cannabis has. I don't, I don't, I think we're a long way from, you know, having pop-up psilocybin dispensaries and having, having states legalize it. So I, you know, I think it does the industry a disservice when people say it's like, you know, cannabis 2.0 or 3.0. I think it'll be, you know, very, very different. I mean, you know, I know as a firm, you know, you know, firm management originally took the position, they thought it was, you know, it was, it would it would take a cannabis path, but with you know more you know even sort of more issues. I think you know we've recently come to the conclusion you know that it will be different, and so you know we are you know we are willing to begin to explore you know working with psychedelic companies, provided that you know you know they're going to do an FDA pathway to you know to if you know if they're on the drug side or you know if they're supporting that, obviously slightly different. But you know I I think it's a fascinating industry. You know, everything I've heard about it, you know, there are some significant, you know, health and wellness, you know, well, serious medical, you know, benefits for some of these psychedelics um, that do, you know, a lot more than some of the drugs out there in the marketplace. Yeah. And, and like you said, though, but they're going to go down an evidence based tri uh, trial yes. you know, yeah, yeah. approach, yeah, yeah. you know, so yeah. they'll do the clinical trials. They'll make sure that, you know. If, because if they're going to make the medical claims, like you said, they're going to have to go through yeah, yeah, the FDA yeah. and, and they're all, I mean, you know, I mean, everyone I've spoken to about this, I'm no, I mean, I know, you know, a fraction of what I know about cannabis. Um, you know, these are all that, you know, will be prescribed under, you know, a doctor or professional care. We won't see, I mean, I know some people microdose, you know, mushrooms. But by and large, you know, I mean, you know, these are ones that are, you know, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're a drug um, and, and will be treated that way. And they'll, you know, will be prescribed in some fashion, you know, and, you know, you'll, you'll take them and will be, you know, you'll, you do therapy, you know, while you're using it. I mean, it's, you know, I know John Hopkins has done, you know, studies with um, LSD to treat PTSD that have apparently have had have phenomenal success in, in keeping it under control for, you know, six months at a time with one treatment, but you know, you do it, you know, in a doctor's office or a therapist's office. In a controlled environment. Yeah. 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 So I, you know, I, so I think, so I, I think ultimately it's, it's very different, but I think it's gonna, you know, it's gonna be, you know, it, it'll probably wind up being dom dominated by, you know, pharma, big pharma companies or, you know, some, you know, smaller ones will buy them and then, you know, we'll start them and then big pharma will buy them. And so, you know, it, it I, I suspect it'll be a bigger, you know, bigger industry than, than the cannabis will be it's at, at some point once, you know, they're all out there and, you know, they're, you know, discovering new ones every day. 
And, you know, on, on a, sort of my, my last question for you is on the be careful what you ask for, right? So we've heard that, you know, everyone is pushing for, you know, legalization at the federal level, um, but there's folks in the industry that aren't in a big hurry. Um, what, do you, what, do you th what are the disadvantages of, you know, federal legalization? Well, I mean, and I think they're right. I mean, you know, if, if you look at most of the folks in the industry now are perfectly happy with the status quo other than banking, banking, and right? taxes, yeah. banking and taxes, right? So yeah. if you could get the Safe Banking Act passed and do away with 280E, and for those of, the, those of you who are not familiar with that, it's a section of the tax code that essentially makes, you know, anybody in the cannabis business can't deduct any of their expenses other than cost of goods. So you're essentially paying, you know, taxes on your gross margin. So it's like, you know, yeah, you could be losing money and having to pay taxes. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the concern about people in the industry is as soon as it's federally legal, you know, all the players out there who, you know, have billions of dollars in cash on their balance sheet, you know, Coke, Pepsi, you know, J and J, you might mean, you know, big pharma, big Bev, big CPG, um, you know, even like folks like, you know, Uber and, and, and the like, you know, will come in and completely dominate the market. And so, you know, the industry wants to get a little more, you know, a little larger, a little, you know, a little more further developed um, and be, you know, better acquisition candidates for these folks to come in. So I, I don't see, you know, there's not a ton of, you know, lobbying by any of those folks for federal legalization. I also don't think you're not, it's not as if you're immediately going to have interstate commerce. I mean, you're going to have, you know, you know, every state that has, has had people spend, you know, hundreds, if not billions of dollars building up infrastructure in their states, isn't going to want that to disappear, you know, you know, at a moment's notice, because then all of a sudden it's, you know, it's cheaper to grow in California, although, the, you know, you guys will have water problems out there. So who court knows what happens there, but um, you know, or even, <laughs> you're right, 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 right. And, and right. And, and cannabis may be, you know, one of the first to suffer that, but yeah. um, you know, you, or, you know, once you open up that can of worms then you know, what do you deal do with, you know, you know, flour coming in from, you know, Colombia and Mexico and places like that. And so, you know, States for, for, you know, for a period of time will protect, you know, you know, will protect their borders, you know, you know, in a way, you know, that will probably require some, you know, court actions, because um, technically, you know, you have to have a, have a, you know, a reason to protect your borders and your citizens that can't be protecting tax revenue. So um, it'll, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how long that takes to play out. But yeah, I also don't see in the current environment, any, you know, any real action on this for, for any, any time soon. There are, you know, as, um, um, you know, someone put on a, a, a webinar um, and they had, you know, legislative aids for some of the, you know, the, you know, long-term, you know, sponsors in the house, um, you know, with Russia, Ukraine, China, infrastructure, there's so many things, you know, that, that people view as more important and floor time on the Senate is very limited. And so, um, yeah, but what people think is important and what drives the Senate doesn't seem to be the same thing. Right. Correct. Correct. Yes. But but I don't think anybody thinks that, you know, that cannabis is in, is important enough to dr drive some of the other things off, you know, the extent that the bill does get to the floor. Um, and then you have to, you know, you'll, you know and, and then can you get 
you know, at least 10 Republican senators to vote in favor of A, a cannabis bill and B, a Democratic sponsored bill. And then, you know, if, uh, you know, you know, without getting too politically, you know, involved here, you know, if the Senate flips and or the House flips in November, um, you know, then you're left with, you know, a lame duck session and things are really hard to get done then. And then you have, you know, you know, you know, we're, you know will the, are the Republicans willing to sponsor a cannabis bill in, you know, in the Senate? And then if that's the case, will Democrats vote for it? I mean, we you know, things are so polarized now that getting anybody to agree on anything and, you know, and then you have 2024 and depending on who the president is and their view of cannabis, you know, that could either, you know, move it forward or, you know, push it back even more. So, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I'm hearing people say now, you know, five, somewhere between five and 10 years is when they expect legalization. But, you know, that's, you know, I mean, you're staring into a crystal ball and, you know, I mean, I mean, nobody has frankly any idea. I mean, this is not what yeah. you could predict. But like you said, you know, the industry could use those five and 10 years to mature and yeah. to protect yeah. itself. Yeah. And, 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 and those of us in it are, you know, I mean, we like that, you know, obviously, as you mentioned before, I mean, we are seeing more law firms in it, but there's still a number of our peer group who aren't. And, you know, so, you know, we're, you know, we're not objecting to the fact that we have less competition. Exactly. Well, Michael, we very much appreciate your time today and, and your insights. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you again. And, and if people are interested in what you're doing and, and want more information, where can they find you? Um, uh, yeah, you can, you, you can find me on, on LinkedIn. Um, you know, under the, under my name that you see here, uh, my feel free to email me as well. It's uh, M is in Michael, D is in David Schwamm, like my last name at DwayneMorris.com. Um, I you know always happy to discuss the subject. Some people say I spend way too much time talking about it, but I think it's a really interesting industry. I'm sort of very passionate about it. Um, you know, on yeah, particularly on the social equity side and making sure that you know the folks who should get a shot at this industry, you know you know, get a shot at it. And so, um, you know, always happy to help and make connections. It is, you know, a fascinating industry and incredibly collaborative. I've never seen an industry where you have competitors actually helping each other because they all, I mean, you know, the rising tide help, you know, lifts all boats. It is, has never been more applicable than it is here. Michael, again, we appreciate your time. Please, please keep talking about it. You've um, offered some really, you know, great insights here and, and on other platforms into what's going on in New York, and, and we appreciate that. So we look forward to chatting with you again, and, and thank you again. Oh, thank you, Mike. It was, it's been a pleasure. Bye.